Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Today we have on Andrew Skull. He's an award-winning author, sociologist, historian of psychiatry, and distinguished professor, professor of sociology and science studies. He taught at the University of Pennsylvania and Princeton before going to the University of California in San Diego. And he won the Roy Porter Medal for Lifetime Contribution to the History of Medicine and the Eric Carlson Award for Lifetime Contributions to the History of Psychiatry. His books include Museums of Madness, Decarceration, Madhouses, Mad Doctors and Madmen, Social Order, Mental Disorder, and many more. His latest book, Desperate Remedies, tells the story of psychiatry in the United States from the 19th century asylum to 21st century psychopharmacology. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Absolutely. And then to start with the passage from Andrew's book, Andrew wrote, to the extent that one can derive useful conclusions from recent work on the genetics of mental illness, two seem to stand out. What we have learned strongly supports the adaptation of a dimensional rather than categorical view of psychiatric disturbances, and its findings demonstrate that psychotic patients are not genetically different in kind from the rest of us. The latter point is a sharply corrective, indeed a reversal, of the conclusion that many drew from the research of early 20th century psychiatric genetics that the mentally ill were biological degenerates. Those studies from a century ago heightened the stigma attached to mental illness. Perhaps the recognition that the sane are not fundament fundamentally different from those suffering from serious forms of mental disturbance will have the opposite effect, though I can't say I'm sanguine that this will be the case. So first of all, I love that. That is to me literally the most important, I think, aspect of your book and the most important paragraph of your book. So I found myself thinking, so because I'm a mental health clinician and I mostly deal, well, I only deal with psychotherapy. I mean, even though I have some peripheral kind of, uh, let's say, sort of dealings with medication as in terms of the way I deal with psych psychiatrists, nurse practitioners, uh, but for the most part, I'm, I'm doing therapy. I don't really have much to do with the medication side of things. So for me, what was so interesting about that is that I was kind of, I found myself wondering, like, in terms of what I learned about the, the sort of the neuroscience behind it and the biochemistry behind it, I always kind of find myself wondering, and in reading this particular passage, I found myself wondering, like, how does that even apply to the sort of day-to-day -day of psychotherapy? Like, so we know this stuff, right? So clinically, we understand that there's some genetic basis for mental disturbance and that there's also, there's a sort of chemical a brain chemical aspect of it, which is obviously really important. But I really wonder in terms of the foundations of all of it, how important is it really? Because when patients come to you, they don't really want to know about brain chemistry and it doesn't really help them in the day to day. They're like, no, I'm having these specific problems. I'm having problems with my landlord. I'm having problems with my spouse. Uh, I find it difficult to pay the bills, whatever it is. Right. And then, so, you know, to begin with the question for you, Andrew, is how do we get to this point where essentially we go from, okay, here are these, you know, what Thomas Oz calls problems problems and living and but no but they can be solved chemically and biochemically which seems kind of antithetical to the day-to-day -day world and the day-to-day -day problems that people experience hmm. yeah well that's a very complicated set of issues to try to unpack but if i could comment briefly um i think for substantial parts of the history of psychiatry there have been very sharp distinctions drawn between the mentally ill and the rest of us. And there are other periods where there's more recognition of the fact that um, we exist along a psychological and psychiatric continuum, as it were. And many of us at some point in our lives experience mental troubles, some, some of them fairly minor, some of them more serious, and others of them completely disabling. Um, so 
the tendency uh, in the last 40 or 50 years has to be has been to move from uh, an era where psychoanalysis was dominant and the sense was that mental illness was rooted in psychological disturbance to one that really emphasizes the brain in various ways. That may be a matter of genetics or it may be a matter of neuroscience, um, particularly as we discovered the role of neurotransmitters in the brain. We used to think the brain was primarily ran on electrical lines and now we're much more interested in, in, in the, the, the kind of chemical soup as it were. Um, We've really moved, uh, as Leon Eisenberg put it, from a, a brainless psychiatry, one that ignored the, the, the kind of physical substrate, to a mindless psychiatry, one that tends to overlook the fact that mental illness has so many social and psychological dimensions to it, and so much of what happens implicates uh, one's social relationships and 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 social setting. So uh, I think it, both of those extremes are clearly a mistake uh, to, to emphasize only the, the psychological and the social clearly takes us in, in um, unfortunate directions because it neglects some part of the picture. But, um, you know, you spoke in the question about um, that biochemistry and genetics must play some role. The research, uh, I mean, one of the things one's thinking about looking at research on mental illness is we want fundamentally to understand where it comes from. And we've not made an enormous amount of progress, I venture to say on that. Not that we've made none, but if you ask honestly, what's the cause of schizophrenia? What's the cause of major depression? What's the cause of bipolar disorder? The honest answer is we do not know. We have mm -hmm. some clues. They don't take us very far. Um, another dimension of research on mental illness and another dimension of coping with it is to try to come up with strategies that in the here and now, given our rather limited understanding of the underlying problems actually affect people's lives for the better. And that may be a mix of um, medication and psychotherapy of various sorts in the since World War II, really since the 70s when, when psychoanalysis largely went into eclipse, that's meant much more things like cognitive behavioral therapy developed from uh, in psych within psychology rather than psychoanalysis, which is much more time limited and focuses on the actual symptoms, as I don't need to tell you, trying mm -hmm. to cope with what it is people come to you complaining about. Right. And for um, certain kinds of uh, mental troubles, uh, that sort of intervention seems to have some positive effects for, for others. Its efficacy, like the efficacy of the medications we have, is much more limited. Um, and the problem with the medicines we have, well, there are multiple problems here. They're not psychiatric penicillin. They don't cure. Um, what they do at best is provide some symptomatic relief, whether you're talking about mania, people 
getting really, really um, uh, out of it, or um, depression or schizophrenia, assuming those labels mark real diseases, um, mm. but they certainly represent points on a continuum. They're things that uh, afflict people. Um, the medications for all those things help some with relatively few side effects, and they're the very lucky ones, and they are a minority. They help some people at the cost of pretty serious side effects um, if we're talking about uh, modern-day antipsychotics, uh, still some problems with things like tardive dyskinesia and, and disorder that produces involuntary movements and uh, facial grimacing and so on that people often interpret ironically as signs that somebody's uh, mentally unwell. Um, but, and sometimes Parkinson's like sym symptoms or rec Oh, uh, we just experienced some ma massive weight gain mm. there, you know, people put on 30, 40, 50, 60 pounds. They develop metabolic disorders, heart disorders, diabetes. Um, so the choice of the drug becomes very complex. And then there are another group of patients for whom these things simply don't work. All they got get are, are the negative effects. And sadly, um, because obviously one hopes that medication will, will have positive effects on people. The drug companies have been largely moving away from investing in this field. So we're stuck mm -hmm. with a set of drugs that really haven't improved since they first came on the scene in the 1950s and have real drawbacks. Um, let me cite one study that I think demonstrates what I'm talking about because when a sociologist speaks to you about the efficacy of medications, the tendency is, yeah, yeah, what do you know? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a very famous study that appeared in 2005 in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's called the Cady study. And it, what it did was compare three modern antipsychotic drugs with one developed in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And the question was, do the new ones work better? And the answer is no. They don't. Well, they're largely a, mess, a, a marketing exercise that make a, made a lot of money for drug companies. But the other interesting thing about um, this study was that depending, there were four drugs in the study, and it, for once it wasn't funded by the pharmaceutical industry, it's funded by NMH. And between 67 and 82 percent of the people taking each of the drugs dropped out of the trial mm -hmm. and they dropped out either because the drugs didn't work for them or because they found the side effects intolerable so that gives you some measure of how um limited uh, the drug treatments we we have available to us are um Stephen Hyman, who was the head of NIMH in the late 90s, early 2000s, spoke about um, the antidepressants. And he said, these are really rather mediocre drugs. And he's right that when you look at the research, they consistently seem to be a bit more effective than placebo, mm -hmm. but only a little bit more effective than placebo. So um, over time, um, there's a small difference. It's not even clear that for many people, it's 
clinically significant. There's a big difference that people often misunderstand. When drugs are advertised to the general population, the ads always say this it makes a you know this is significantly better treatment right. for you. Mm. What that means very often is it's statistically better than the alternative, but the additional benefit it brings you is often so small as to not really be of great significance. So this wait, is Andrew, a very Andrew, wait, and just for just for yeah. our audience, right? Can, can we distinguish what's the difference between clinical significance and statistical significance? Because usually when people hear the word significant, they automatically think like, well, it's a, it's a significant difference. That means it really does matter. Mm -hmm. Yes, of course. So typically one of the things that has emerged in medicine in the last 75 years is what's called an emphasis on evidence-based medicine. That mm -hmm. depends on running clinical trials in which some patients get the active treatment, whatever it might be, it might even be psychotherapy, and some patients don't. And what you try to do is allocate people randomly between the two things, the, the treatment, the non-treatment, um, and uh, you try to make sure they don't know what they're getting. That's almost impossible, of course, with psychotherapy. It's very, very difficult. But with um, drug treatments, it's possible to give people a sugar pill or the real thing. Or if you're a bit cleverer than that, if you know, for example, that antidepressants cause certain obvious side effects, dry mouth, um, other kinds of immediate symptoms, you give them a substitute that doesn't have a psychoactive effect, but mimics those side effects. So they can't guess so easily which, which one they're on. So statistical significance means when you compare those two groups, you look for differences in outcomes and you try to determine whether those could possibly happen by chance. If if they exceed a certain limit, it's increasingly unlikely that you're just seeing noise, you're just seeing a fake reaction. Mm -hmm. So statistically, something may be, um, uh, you know, you get a reliable effect. And that's what, for example, when you look at antidepressants compared to placebo, almost always there's a slight, there's a difference statistically between uh, the people getting the drug and the people who are who are not. Mm -hmm. But um, you're looking for degrees of improvement. So typically, when you're dealing with something like depression, you have a measuring scale like the Hamilton scale, for example, that measures uh, according to a series of, of questions or a series of observations um, to what degree you've you're symptoms have changed are you less prone to be sleepless are you is your appetite better is your mood better are you you know and so on so clinically um small movements on that scale aren't don't make much difference to people's actual outcome to whether they're we would regard them as having an improved life uh, an improved mental state. So you could have something that statistically is is better than placebo, than doing giving people a sugar pill. Mm -hmm. But in reality, those differences aren't enough to really make a difference. And when you load in the fact that drugs 
are not a free lunch. Whenever you take even an aspirin, that you run some risk of untoward effects accompanying taking that pill. And in the case of antipsychotics and antidepressants uh, and mood disorder drugs like lithium, um, those risks are non-trivial. In fact, sometimes they're life-threatening and certainly life-altering. So it's very important to understand. Significant to most people means, oh, it's important. But right. actually, mm -hmm. if it's just statistically significant, it may be relatively unimportant in the real world. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, um, what role do uh, drug companies play in perpetuating the chemical imbalance theory? Well, there have been some interesting recent studies that have made, attracted quite a lot of attention by a, uh, a psychiatrist in London named Joanna Moncrief, mm -hmm. um, who's produced two papers, uh, one of which looks at the chemical imbalance theory, the idea that depression is caused by a shortage of serotonin in the brain, with serotonin being one of the neurotransmitters that, that we all uh, is part of our makeup. Right. Uh, and she produced a second study, which will appear in print as late as December of this year, but is circulating online already. We looked at um, whether it was just drug company marketing that spread the idea that you just needed enough serotonin and you'd be um, happy again, uh, or whether psychiatrists as well contributed to the spread of that theory. And that paper, uh, to my mind, looking at both the scientific literature and the textbooks that are taught to psychiatrists shows that the profession themselves had some role in perpetuating this theory. It wasn't just uh, the drug companies. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't, you know, this is this is something that had a very receptive audience. Um, Tippa Gore, uh, Al Gore's first wife, like a number of politicians' wives, um, suffered from depression. I think mm -hmm. being a the spouse of a politician is is not a very pleasant experience for most people. Mm -hmm. She was depressed. She got treated, and in her uh, autobiography, which was ghosted, she talks about it, and she says, "Well, you know, it's like running out of gas." in your car, you come to a juddering hold. If you don't have enough serotonin, you become not just unhappy, but seriously depressed. And then you get this drug, this SSRI, um, and it replenishes your serotonin levels in your brain, and then you're happy. Mm -hmm. um, scientifically, that's simply not true. Mm -hmm. um, it's And it's been known for 15, 20 years that there are serious, serious flaws with, with that argument. Um, let me give you a couple of reasons why mm -hmm. it's not so apart from the fact that we have a very hard time measuring serotonin levels in the brain. Mm -hmm. um, when you take uh, SSRIs, um, you get the, your serotonin levels improve almost right away by, you know, that's what the drugs do. But typically, it takes weeks before those drugs take effect, Before you, mm -hmm. if they do. Mm -hmm. um, there are other um, antidepressants that work well by a completely different pathway. So people whose serotonin levels are not being uh, um, 
affected, nonetheless um, show some degree of improvement, limited as it may be, on those bills. Uh, so we've moved, you know, in informed opinion. Very, very few neuroscientists now would propose uh, that sort of simplistic account of where depression comes from. But it has been a very powerful marketing tool. And it's something that for patients and patients' families, I think, was quite appealing when it came on the scene. Mm -hmm. uh, in the following sense, that um, much mental illness in the, in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s was attributed to, you know, as bad parenting. You had a refrigerator mother who was, or a schizophrenic-inducing mother. Mm -hmm. uh, families tended to be blind. Disease, mental disease as well, sadly, has always been accompanied by a great deal of stigma. And many times people being reluctant to recognize the reality of the suffering that it causes. Um, if you start to tell people, hey, you've got something biologically wrong with your brain or your son or your daughter's um, behavior is the product of that, not your your bad parenting, obviously that's an attractive thing. And it, it makes mm -hmm. mental illness real. It makes it clear that it is an illness, um, not malingering or something else, mm -hmm. uh, not made up, not just a problem in living, to use Tom Sazza's term. So it has attractions in that way for people. Um, there are drawbacks, I think, um, or at least that it's not, really a, a true account because we we still find the origins of mental illness so mysterious but also it tends to reduce people's agency i mean if if it's something in the chemical soup of my brain that's making me the way i am um there's not a hell of a lot i can do about that i mean other than take pills that might correct it mm. but actually i mean if you're somebody who dispenses psychotherapy for example one of the things you're trying to teach people about the way they think about the world is that the patterns that they adopt the the ways they typically respond are actually um self-defeating and, and right. damaging and they can learn perhaps to uh deal with the world in a, a different and more realistic way so you want people to have that sense of agency if they if that sort of intervention is going to work. If you um, diminish that sense of, of possibility, I I think it's it can actually be anti-therapeutic. So, you know, this is a an area where if if you look at um, the research on drugs, what well, I think the big drug companies have moved away from further work in this area, even though they made billions and billions of dollars of profit in, in this sector, because they literally ran out of new ideas, new targets. They couldn't figure out anything that was likely to work better. They suffered a lot of reputational damage because there were lawsuits that exposed all sorts of chicanery that they got up to with these drugs. So, mm -hmm. um, 
they would they controlled the data increasingly. Clinical trials are very expensive business. These days, in order to generate statistical significance, the larger the sample you have, the more likely you're going to be able to generate some statistically different uh, uh, um, significant findings. Mm -hmm. So you have these very large trials, often uh, spanning different countries. Mm -hmm. The only person who sees the only group that sees all the data is the drug company for whom those are proprietorial things they own the data right. and the lawsuits have shown that um they suppress data they don't like um they manipulate findings to emphasize the ones that favor their drugs and they often hide the ones about side effects, for example, um, that that would damage their the the drug's marketability, and and they've had to pay damages that range in the billion to three billion dollar range. Uh, it's been a cost of business has been worth doing so long as the drugs were as profitable as they were. Mm -hmm. But I think other areas of medicine show more um, promise of profitability, uh, and as I say, until we have a better clue about um, the underlying mechanisms that produce mental illness, presuming those are purely physical, which I doubt, mm. um, then, uh, you know, the, the, the incentives. And, and in, in the last 10 years, all the drug companies you can think of, Squibb, Pfizer, the lot, have, have really abandoned this area of research. To the extent research continues, it tends to be small startups with an idea that maybe will will help right and um, what i what i think is so interesting is that you have multiple chemicals involved in something like let's say depression so you'll have dopamine neuroepinephrine and then also serotonin and then so the question is okay so right so how do you kind of just disentangle which ones are the ones who that are i guess mostly connected to it as opposed to which environmental factors mm -hmm. and then how do you kind of separate all of them and figure out what to kind of treat you know Yes, no, enormously difficult. And a further problem with the drugs, I, I spoke earlier that, you know, there are some people for whom, fortunately, these things work reasonably well, and they tolerate the drugs reasonably well. And then there's this group in the middle where the cross benefits tricky, and then there's another group for whom the drugs are just a curse. Going into treatment, we don't know which group a given patient is going to fall into. Right. And when a particular drug doesn't work, what tends to happen is they prescribed another one and then another one, or sometimes yeah. multiple drugs. Sometimes they get antidepressants and antipsychotics multiplying the, pro the possibility they're going to end up with, with nasty side effects. So um, that's, that's a serious problem. And um, it would be nice if we could say, well, genetics is going to unravel which patient is going to fall into which group in advance, and then you know you, you don't give this class of drug to this patient because it's not going to work. Unfortunately, we're, very, we're not anywhere close to that yet. Uh, maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. Part of the problem, I think, is um, you know I spoke at the very beginning about how we've tended to lurch from um, biology doesn't matter to everything's biology mm -hmm. when it comes to mental illness. Um, I think that distinction is, is on its face a false one. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that's interesting about us as animals, 
and we are animals at the line at the end of the day, <laughs> is that our brains stay so plastic for so long. So when you try to make a sharp distinction between the biological and the psychological slash social, you're pretending as though those two things are independent, but they're actually very interdependent. So the way in which your brain develops structurally, the way it works, is not just a product of the brain you were born with. Uh, it's also the product of all the experiences you have, which then translate into changes in the way your brain is put together and works. The drugs too change the structure of your brain. There was a huge line of thinking in the 1980s and 90s. We saw studies that showed people with schizophrenia had brains that shrank, particularly in the frontal cortex. Mm -hmm. But it now turns out that a lot of that is the effect of the drugs we've been giving them. So um, we're easily led down wrong pathways here. And what we really need to understand, I think, and it's why mental illness is such a complicated problem, is that it's foolish to pretend that the fact that we're biological beings has nothing to do with some of the problems we see with mental illness. It's also foolish to ignore the role of the social environment, the psychological experiences of the child and the adult as they grow, because the brain continues to be plastic much longer than we had thought. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we, we need that more comprehensive look at things just because of the way we're actually constituted and built. We, we don't arrive in this world with a fully formed brain that after that um, just dictates what's going to happen to us. And when we look, a lot of money has been poured into genetic research. What's interesting, in, in the early 20th century, a lot of that genetic research was associated with eugenics, the idea that you know there were some biologically defective inferior people. Um, and there were a lot of family studies because that was the way you could study genes back in those days. Uh, and the leading researches were done in Germany in the 19th and 20s and 30s. And if you know anything about your history, that's the period where the Nazis are rising and coming to power. And mm. that strand of genetic research fed into the Nazis, first mass sterilizing the mentally ill and then murdering them something like a quarter million mental patients murdered with the active participation of many leading German psychiatrists. So genetic research kind of went into eclipse after World War II because of that, the association with the Nazis. But he, when we switch back to a more biological view of mental illness, then uh, we, you know, genetics once again started to come to the fore. And of course, then we had great breakthroughs. We had uh, the ability to chop up um, bits of, of the genetic code. We, we were able early in the 21st century to decode the whole of the human genome or a very substantial part of it. So the expectation was because families, you know, everybody sees mental illness running in families to a degree, right. that the genetics would really provide a, a major key into this mystery of where mental illness came from. But in fact, um, it's tended to complicate the situation. Everybody expected we'd find a, a kind of Mendelian gene for schizophrenia or a set of genes that made people liable to schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. That's not the way it's worked out. 
Um, first of all, we now have very um, massive abilities to process large amounts of data. And when we feed in everything we know about the genetics of, of people who don't seem to be mentally ill and people who are, um, it takes an, in, it's an enormous number of variations on the, uh, on the, in the genetic code to explain even a tiny bit of the variance. If we aggregate everything they've been able to find, you can explain seven or perhaps 9% of the variance, not much in right. other words. And it also turns wait, out wait, Andrew, that, Andrew, so I yeah. just want to, I just want to interrupt to ask, right? So yes, when we're thinking sure. about what well, we're thinking about statistical variants, right? So mm -hmm. what are we, what are we thinking in terms of like the contribution? How does anybody even really assess how that contribution is made? Would we say that, okay, you have some people that do have these genetic traits and then some people who don't, and then some people have schizophrenia and some people who don't. And how do you sort of quantify that? Right. That's because what you'd so that's what you, yeah, that's what you'd like if there were clear cut differences that right. But the problem is, so you get a statistical association. So if you have these kinds of, uh, of uh, variations that show up, you have, statistically speaking, a slightly higher risk of, of, of developing schizophrenia, right. let, let us say. Um, but um, it's only a statistical association. It doesn't really tell us a lot about cause. And it only explains a very small amount of the variance. Very mm -hmm. many people have those same uh, genetic patterns and right. don't develop schizophrenia. So there's no obvious immediate, you, what you, you know, you're thinking you're going to have a clear cause and effect. This genetic defect, you become schizophrenic. That's not what the research shows. And right. when it comes to the inheritance of mental disorder, it's even more complex than that because uh, there's great overlap in the data uh, between people who have what we call bipolar disorder or, and people we have called schizophrenic and people we cause, say have major depression. There's not a, not a clear pattern that distinguishes those categories gen when you look, look at the genetic research a little bit but mostly it's overlap. What seems to happen to the extent genes matter, at least with the data we have so far, is yeah, um, in families, you, you have a, a, greater, a slightly greater propensity to become mentally ill, but what form that mental illness is gonna take is not obviously genetically determined, if you see what I'm, what I'm saying here. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's partly for that reason and partly because our diagnostic categories in psychiatry are derived purely symptomatically, really, um, that leading researchers are beginning to wonder whether these really are different diseases in the way, say, uh, tuberculosis and pneumonia are clearly different kinds of lung disease, whether they're points on a continuum. And that, again, when you read that quote at the beginning, I talked about the difference between a categorical and, 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 and dimensional view of mental illness. A dimensional view suggests we're all arrayed along a continuum. And mm -hmm. at some point along that continuum, 
the differences become so acute, so, so noticeable that we begin to label them, we begin to respond to them differently. The differences are real. I, you know, I, I want to emphasize that. Um, and at the at the margins, it's it's really obvious when when somebody is labeled um, a chronic schizophrenic, there are a whole series of aspects of their being that any competent member of the culture, you don't need to be a um, uh, a trained psychiatrist or clinical psychologist to recognize, you will recognize that something is really badly different. I mean, this person doesn't operate the same in the same universe as the rest of us. Right. Um, but, you know, there are other people who, and, and this is socially variable over time, you know, societies tolerate certain kinds of eccentricities and difficult mm -hmm. personalities. And in other societies, those kinds of difference become intolerable. And so right. where we draw the line, where we say this is pathology and this is right. just normal human variation, he's a cantankerous old git who's right. difficult to get along with, or um, he's something a bit more serious than that, you know? So the, drawing those lines is difficult. We've, we've created categories that really revolve around a core set of symptoms and they're not, um, they don't seem to correspond to what we see as we learn more about genetics or we learn more about um, neuroscience to sort of natural kinds out there in the world. So I've seen, you know, I in the course of writing this book, I, I talked with a number of leading psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. I like to think of as, as friends and we have some robust disagreements sometimes, but we also converge on some things. So I was, you know, uh, just recently I was in London at the launch of my book and I spoke with Sir Robin Murray, who's a fellow of the Royal Society. And, um, you know, he's one of the world's leading researchers on schizophrenia. He spent mm -hmm. 50 years in the field and he wrote a paper recently. It was called Mistakes I've Made in My Research Career. It's a brave wow. thing to do. Mm -hmm. And he said, um, I don't think this label of schizophrenia is going to still be here in 10 years. I think it's going to vanish. Wow. Uh, and people have said the same thing about bipolar disorder. So that's a potentially quite destabilizing thing. You know, schizophrenia was first labeled as, as that um, around 1910 by the Swiss psychiatrist Bloiler, um, really um, modifying uh, the earlier notion of dementia precox, which had been a, a German invention. Um, and we've been taught for 100 years and more that schizophrenia is real. It's a disease like um, pneumonia or, or TB or Right. Uh, um, which is also which is also very cultural because if we're thinking yeah. about sort of you know what they call more primitive societies you have like shamans and sort of these seers who are you know i guess in some sense they would be classified as schizophrenic probably in our kind of culture but the thing yeah. is like the way that they adapt to the culture is so different mm -hmm. than the way that we have adapted people who are or have allowed people to adapt who are considered to be mentally ill where those people are in some ways placed on a pedestal whereas here they're denigrated yeah, yeah. Uh, very quick there are yeah, i'm sorry but there, oh. there are, it's true, when you look at, at history, look cross-culturally, sometimes 
certain kinds of mentally ill people are seen in that positive fashion. You could see that even in medieval times. When we look back at some of the people, for example, who were made saints, um, and you look at what went on, you think that's somebody who was seriously disturbed. Or if you read the Hebrew Bible and you read about some of the prophets, you go, well, in our society, people who heard God speaking to them and did this and did that would, would be labeled as, as out of their minds. There, they had a part. But for most of human history, most people who were seriously mentally ill that was not a status you particularly wanted. But you're right. It, yeah. it it does vary culturally. And sometimes these things come to be valued uh, or in the alternative seen as people who are possessed by the devil right. with very nasty consequences for them. So, yeah, it it it, it is. It, it's an example of how complex this whole problem of mental illness is that it accrues all these layers of meaning and these different social responses that vary to some extent by social class, by belief structures, by time, um, by where you are. Um, so it, it does um, represent a, a, an enormous puzzle. Uh, and it's I think precisely because our understandings of it are so thin mm. and the disturbance that these people sometimes create in our midst are so great that we often reject them. We, we, we construct these stigmatizing views of what's the, what's the matter with them. And we often treat them. So when I called my book, Desperate Remedies, I was trying to invoke actually a rather complicated set of things. One set of people who are quite desperate, some of them are the mentally ill. Some people actually in the course of their manic phase, for example, actually kind of enjoy that state. Right. The people around them don't. The second group who are desperate are families and the near and dear of these people for whom dealing with the consequences of their mental states is, um, shall I put it, more than slightly stressful. If you're living with a schizophrenic daughter who is threatening to kill herself, um, that does make daily life, or maybe kill you, make daily life rather complicated. Mm. Um, so they're desperate. And, and then psychiatrists and psychologists who are making a career of trying to treat these people are desperate as well. Uh, mm -hmm. They want their own sense of efficacy. They want they're, they're professionals that become healers. At least that's what they right. hope but, to be. But but also, unfortunately, oftentimes they're not willing to work with the patient. Like uh, so, Alan, were you going to talk about Dan Bergner? Who we had on? Ah, uh, yes. So when we were talking about schizophrenia, we we had a guest on uh, Daniel Bergner, and in yes. his book he interviewed a woman who had schizophrenia. And what was very fascinating about her is that uh, she actually developed sort of a different relationship to that to that label of schizophrenia. And in fact, uh, she would actually engage with the voices in her head and somewhat yes. become friendly with them. And it sort of painted mm -hmm. a, a different uh, picture of maybe how to sort of treat or deal with schizophrenia as opposed to label it as an issue. Maybe it's something that could be 
treated or one could change their relationship to it right, right. Uh, potentially right as, as opposed to like medical suppression which is what she was really against so there's an article on her in the new york times specifically about her uh, i dan really? wrote it too yeah mm -hmm. so dan, dan wrote yeah. it as well right and so she said essentially she said the problems that she had with psychiatrists was she's like first of all the drugs were awful they made her feel terrible but then yep. on top of that she's like they were just trying to suppress the voices and it didn't even really work whereas like this other way that she's found around it it's not so it's not necessarily a victory per se from what I remember about it because she said look the voices still come up they still get angry and aggressive especially when I'm stressed out but the thing is she said it's in, 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 in sort of when we're comparing and contrasting the costs and benefits she preferred her method to the medication which she said for her again if you're factoring in a side mm -hmm. effects too she said they were just a nightmare yeah um, well there are you know patient self-help groups and there are groups of people working with patients who've tried those kinds of approaches and for some patients, they may work. Um, with with all of these approaches, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, we're a bit fumbling in the dark. And um, yes, when you stigmatize mental the mentally ill, when you treat them as radically different from us, almost subhuman, if you look at some of the language, um, then you stop listening to them, and you I mean one of the major themes of desperate remedies is how vulnerable mental patients have been to therapeutic enthusiasts people who get the idea that they know the solution to mental illness uh, you know will zap them uh with electricity we mm -hmm. will um give the put them into comas with insulin we'll remove the infected parts of their bodies that are poisoning their brains. So we'll pull all their teeth and their tonsils and then their colons and their stomachs. Um, or um, we'll sever part of their frontal lobes because they're mm -hmm. obsessed with a certain set of ideas. We'll interrupt that by physically damaging that portion of the brain. When you, when you see the litany of those kinds of interventions, you understand the way in which desperation and the compulsion to do something even when you don't know really what you should be doing can right. lead you down some very dangerous pathways right and um, but and by the way my grandfather actually died from that so he was uh he was taken to an asylum yeah so in the soviet union he was taken to an insane asylum and then so i think they diagnosed him with schizophrenia even though it from my family history it doesn't seem like he had it from what my mom tells me but that's what the yeah. diagnosis was and then so essentially they gave him insulin and he eventually he passed away from it so that was it they just sort of drugged him to death yeah yeah insulin coma therapy i mean it it was widespread, but it could never be used on a mass scale because when you're put into those comas, it's medically, I mean, apart from mm. the suffering that it causes, it's it's very dangerous. I mean, you're hovering literally if on the, the brink between life and death. If, if they don't administer uh, glucose soon enough, or if the dose is a bit too large, you'll lapse into a permanent coma and you'll die. Right. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, the interesting thing is that how easily that was accepted as a treatment and how uncritically right. psychiatrists in the late 1930s were given statistics that it cured 80% of schizophrenics, one wishes. And, and then when it was finally put to a controlled 
test in the 1950s. It just didn't work, no. you know. But remember, for 2,000 years, we treated lots of illness with bloodletting and purges and vomits and blisters. Um, the doctors truly believed they worked, and so did the patients, and probably because of the placebo effect, they did have some impact. Sure. When we look back at it, we shake our heads. Mm. But I think people will look back at some of the things we do and shake their heads, um, as mm. we already do with, with with things like insulin comas and lobotomies. You know, we look at that and we think, oh, that's the pre-scientific age. But right. um, right. you know, I worry. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So yeah, and, I, and you know, just thinking about it, you have like this entire history of just let's call it motivated reasoning, where essentially uh, you, these sort of academics, researchers, what have you, they're doing things that are that are sort of harmful to the mass public. Let's say in large, right? Not for everybody, obviously, but they have like an inordinate amount of power. But then, as we kind of move on, what you're seeing is that you're saying that like let's say governments and uh, well, in this particular case, like the FDA allows like direct to consumer marketing, which doesn't even make sense because if now we're thinking about these people who are at least experts they have power now we're kind of shifting the power to consumers who like i'm not a researcher right alan's not a researcher i mean this isn't what we do for a living but yet now somehow yeah. we can go to our doctor and we could say hey doc i saw this great commercial that's what i want to treat me yeah and believe me those very expensive ad campaigns aren't being done because they don't work <laughs> that they're, they're done because demonstrably they drive sales Right. And yes, I, I, we're one of the few societies along with, I think it's New Zealand that allows this kind of direct advertising to consumers. And of course, it's not confined to the realm of psychiatry. It's, it's uh, quite widespread, but it's, it's a disaster, you know, right. the, uh, in, in my view, it's bad enough that clinicians, once they're trained and let loose on the world, there's relatively limited kind of um, continuing education of them. So, and it's impossible to keep on, on, on top of these things. You, you look at the literature. I mean, I had to read realms and realms of this stuff. Um, mm. And um, even I was reading a, a small fraction of what was out there. I tried to focus my, my attention, but if you're a busy clinician, you, you know, working, a 40 or 50 hour week, where right. are you going to fit in the time to stay on top of that? For an ordinary person, they hear this, this makes a significant difference to your life. And that's back to when we were talking about clinical versus statistical significance. The data very often don't support that, but it's, uh, you know, again, uh, how are ordinary people supposed to figure that out? Right. Um, it, you know, it, it, one of the fascinating things I, I uh, spoke about these recent studies of, of um, uh, the, the kind of chemical imbalance theory of, of depression, mm. um, the lead researcher there um, also was the co-author of one of the papers that critiqued the, the literature on on clinical trials of antidepressants where you're comparing antidepressants and placebos and made the point that although the differences already are fairly slight and yet the trials very often aren't blind at all because people are able to guess almost right away 
I'm on the right pill or I'm on the sugar pill. Right. Uh, and if they think they're getting the active treatment and they believe, you know, their doctors, you know, they think, oh, this is going to work. That magnifies the placebo effect. So you, you're not getting a real measure of what the, what the drug is or is not doing. Um, so it's a very complicated area. Um, and I think a lot of the research, it's, it, it's hard to argue against basic research on the underlying problems here. Mm -hmm. But when all the research is, is running down a particular narrow pathway, um, it's, uh, I think, not surprising that it, it doesn't produce good results. When Thomas Insel stepped down as head of NIMH back in 2015, he gave a very, what ought to be a, uh, well, it was in an obscure place, an MIT electronic journal, um, but he recently repeated it in his book, Healing. And he said, you know, I was the head of the agency for about 13 years and I, I spent a lot of money and I funded all this cool research on genetics and neuro and neuroscience. And he said, I think I spent upwards of $20 billion. Wow. And he said, the, um, the state of people with serious mental illness didn't improve a bit after spending all that money. Uh, my reaction to that was that's a pretty appalling. I think it's true, but yeah. I think it's a pretty appalling admission and maybe something that should suggest you should change tactics a little bit. Uh, perhaps, I mean, yes, we want to understand underlying mechanisms, but shouldn't we also be investigating what kinds of interventions in the here and now, given the limitations of our knowledge, produced improved outcomes for people's lives mm -hmm. um you know should should we be spending more money on kind of clinical research as alongside the basic the basic science stuff um so it's yeah i i worry that we've gone down some um overly simplistic pathways they they produce some knowledge i mean Insel went on to say it's produced some really cool science and it's, uh, you know, it's, um, it's funded some really interesting work. But at the end of the day, if you're the head of NIMH, you're, you're, one of your major charges is improving the condition of the mentally ill. We mm -hmm. know now that if you have serious mental illness, you are going to live 15 to 25 years less mm -hmm. than the rest of us. And that gap is growing, not diminishing. That's not that's not just the product of bad psychiatry. That's the product of poor social policies, which condemn people to the street and the jail when they have mental illness. But um, it's a very sobering statistic, and it tells us how far away we are from really dealing adequately with this problem. Once wow. upon a time, we put people into these big asylums and basically toss the key away um, but now we're back to that this kind of revolving thing where they go from the flop house to the street to the jail mm -hmm. you know the three largest places of inpatient care if you can call it that for the mentally ill in the u.s uh, la county jail cook county jail in illinois and rikers island that's mm -hmm. an indictment of us as a society that we would do that to people with serious mental illness. It's 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 shocking.
that's all I can say. Absolutely. And I sort of have two questions in one. Um, of course, I want to respect your time. So I guess I'll ask both. <laughs> uh, so what's your take on uh, something like uh, psychedelic assisted uh, psychotherapy? And then mm. as and what do you think is the future of psychiatry? Great questions. Two <laughs> in 30 seconds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you know, uh, there was there was some preliminary experimentation with LSD before it became a kind of party drug and then became illegal uh, back in the in the 50s and early 60s. Um, I think that the data on this and on ketamine and esketamine the, the, is is very very weak at the moment. Mm. Whether these will prove to be another series of desperate remedies or prove to be something that actually has some purchase. I don't know. It's not surprising, for example, um, that um, if you take special K, which people have taken as a party drug to improve their mood and to have a good time, that temporarily your, your mental state changes. I mean, those drugs have powerful effects. What we need to know is not in a 30-day trial with very few participants run by somebody who believes in the treatment, which is what we get at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, we need something where you look at things over the long haul. We don't even have those studies with uh, antipsychotics and antidepressants. Typical trials don't run for years, and right. yet people are on those drugs for years. Um, and so I, I, I'm just very cautious. I, I, one of the themes of my book is don't, don't buy into enthusiasms too easily that mm. people often sincerely believe in whatever nostrum they're peddling. And, and um, then only later do we say, no, no, that's completely wrong. Henry Cotton was a guy who believed everybody went mad because their brains were being poisoned by toxins that came from infections elsewhere in their body and flowed right. into the brain, right? Mm -hmm. Wait, so he pulled his two children's teeth and his wife's teeth so they wouldn't go mad. His two children later both committed suicide, so that didn't work so well. When Henry wow. himself had a breakdown, mm -hmm. he went off to Hot Springs, Arkansas, and he had his teeth pulled. So mm -hmm. he believed in what he was doing. He was perfectly sincere and he was sincerely nuts, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the treatment maimed and killed thousands of people and it, it was a disaster. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, I worry. Um, deep brain stimulation is another thing we see touted. The two controlled trials that were started of that treatment funded by the makers of the of the devices both ended early because the trials were a disaster wow um, and yet it still continues the american journal of psychiatry just two years ago published a piece by one of the enthusiasts from this treatment suggesting it would work i see stories in the washington post saying maybe deep brain stimulation is the cure for our opioid epidemic and i I just want to hold my head in my hands. Seven hours of neurosurgery to cure all those addicts. Mm -hmm. It's not going to work, you know, but we, we, 
we grasp for these simple solutions. Now, yeah. psychiatry, hmm. well, if one's optimistic, what you hope to see, and you do see with, I think, some of the young people moving into the profession, what you hope to see is a broadening of their approach, a willingness to to consider multiple things. But it's very mm -hmm. hard, for example, in academic psychiatry to build a career based on social psychiatry, on right. attending to these social things. Careers are built by having large grants to study genetics and neuroscientific things. Um, and you won't be the darling of your medical school dean doing the other kind of research, even though in terms of practical effect, on people's lives, that may be the better way to go. I think many of the younger psychiatrists coming into the field are beginning to be unhappy with what they see, whether they'll be able to move things into a different direction. I'm not sure. I'm wow. not sure. Um, yeah. And then also, I mean, before we wrap up, we want to just want to be clear in saying this because I think it's really important that please do not stop taking your medication. If you're on medication for mm, depression, schizophrenia, whatever, please, that's a disclaimer. Absolutely. Because, right. Because these Absolutely. are sort of well, long, two, yeah. two things. Do not turn to me for <laughs> clinical advice. I right. get emails all the time now because of the book saying I have such and such a problem. What do you advise I do? And I say, go and see. You know, if I know a good psychiatrist in the neighborhood, go and see Dr. X. Um, but yes, absolutely. That's very, very, very important. Once you're on these medications, getting off them can be quite tricky, but abruptly discontinuing them can be quite dangerous. So right. absolutely do, do not, uh, do not take this as skepticism about you know uh, right and, and then also bumper. it's 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 also worth saying because these medications do help some people significantly even if Absolutely. let's say there are no sharp withdrawal symptoms i mean you're going to pretty much decline back into your old symptoms into symptomology and so that, please you know we know that happens with patients where medication do does work pretty well right. they then feel better and they discontinue yeah, they, they just stop taking them bang right. it comes back right um so yeah it, it i the first thing is do not take medical advice from me because I am not trained to give it to you. And besides global medical advice over the radio is a bad idea. Um, but secondly, <laughs> we do know, we do know that abrupt discontinuation is, is very is potentially extremely harmful. Uh, so if you are considering getting off your medication, you need to do that very carefully and with under careful medical care. Um, absolutely no, absolutely don't don't self-medicate <laughs> yeah andrew um, not thank you here. thank you so much yeah. for coming on this was such an insightful episode thank you so much yeah oh, and if we wanted so to really appreciate you having me um you'll let me know when it you know with a link when it when it uh, absolutely realizes in the world yes okay of course and that's if great we wanted well, very to... nice to meet both of you virtually um and thanks for the conversation <laughs> wait andrew one last well. thing one last thing yes if, yeah. if we wanted to follow you follow your yes. work and, and of course buy the book uh where, where can we do that oh the the book is most easily bought from amazon and you can buy it in in two very different forms um you can buy it as as a well you 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 can you can buy it as a physical book 
Um, and it's running at a discount right now on Amazon, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can also get an audio book. Um, and I had a bit of a role in choosing who did that reading. Um, Penguin Random House published the book over in, over in Britain. Mm-hmm. And they commit, they sent me a half dozen possibilities. They said, listen to these and decide who you would like reading your book. Mm-hmm. And I picked one of them, whose name is Patrick, and I forget his last name, which is a bit shameful. But the, the audio book is really very engaging. It turns out he is wonderful at reading my prose. Uh, and if you like audiobooks, my wife has taken to listening to this when she takes long walks. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that's that's a good way to do it. And I think it's also available on Kindle if if you're one of those people who likes reading books on screens. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not I, one of those. I, and also you're not on social media. So what's your website? Uh, I sadly don't, don't have one. Oh, interesting. Um, people, I thought you did. Mm-hmm. No, I, um, you, could, you can contact um, Harvard University Press who published the book here and mm-hmm. they have a website that has has things. And there are there are a number of podcasts out there besides yours um, if people are interested in there. And a long interview I did with the Los Angeles Times mm-hmm. uh, that's available out there online. And I think if people want to get a quick sense of the book, um, that that helps quite, quite a bit. Um, Excellent. So. All right, Andrew. Th- thank you again. Okay. Thank you again. Well, thank you, guys. Um, have a good rest of your Sunday and uh, good luck with the broadcast. Okay. You too. You Talk well. to you Take soon. Care. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Awesome. So, everyone, uh, if you want to follow us, uh, please follow us on at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, even TikTok. We're also on Twitter at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe. Hit the bell on YouTube. That's right. And everyone, thank you again so much for watching and see you next time.